So we are in the, uh, the book of Acts, and we are at uh, week number 16. So if you have a Bible, open up to Acts, Acts chapter 8. Uh, but this is the 16th week that we have been in the story of Acts. And specifically, uh, each week uh, we're, we're seeking to learn uh, how to learn from the men and women that were used by God uh, to change the world. Uh, it's been exciting to see it's an ordinary group of men and women uh, who got in relationship with an extraordinary God and saw God do extraordinary things. And so each week we've been walking story through story through story, seeking to learn, uh, and not just learn so we have knowledge, but learn how, learn from them, but then also apply what we're learning to how we live because our conviction has been God wants to do extraordinary things with us. Uh, I know that's my conviction. I hope it's your growing conviction as we've walked through the story of Acts uh, that God uses ordinary men and women like ourselves to do extraordinary things. Uh, now, as I said, we've been walking story by story by story, and one of the things I don't want us to lose sight of is the big story, uh, the storyline that dominates just the theme of Acts. And I could really sum up the story, the big storyline in the book of Acts, really in two ways. Number one would be this. Jesus gave them something to do. Jesus gave them something to do. In short, he told them, go change the world. This is Acts chapter 1, uh, the back half of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when it says, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. So everywhere you go, Jesus says, what I want you to do is I just want you to tell other people about me. I want you to tell other people of who I am, what I've done, what I am doing, what I can do. Go into the entire world telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And they did it. They did it. Immediately, as we kind of finished Acts 1, jumped into Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God showed up, and they began just seeing testimony and story after story of lives that were changed. It just started with a group of really 11 it was about 120 when they heard this commission, this command given them. And literally within a few short weeks, they saw thousands and thousands and thousands of men and women and children uh, coming to know Jesus in a real way, placing their faith in Jesus. So they were seeing lives changed by the person of Jesus. But coupled with amazing stories of lives being transformed, the community of God, the church growing at such a rapid rate, they also began to start seeing some other things, things like persecution. A lot of their leaders either had been jailed or imprisoned at this time, and as we studied over the last two weeks in the story of Stephen, he was actually killed, and he was killed for one reason, because he placed his faith in Jesus. So Jesus gave them something to do, and the something that he gave them to do was go change the world. That's the big storyline in Acts. And really the second storyline in Acts that we've been following is this. Number two, Jesus gave them what they needed to accomplish what he told them to do. So he didn't just tell us, go do something and say, I hope it works out. Go figure it out. Go struggle your way through this. Jesus gave them what they needed to accomplish what he told them to do. In short, he empowered them to accomplish the mission. This is Acts 1 verse 8 again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He never promised that it would be easy but he did promise, I'm going to be with you, and I will be in you, working through you to accomplish everything that I have given you to do. 
What I love about just simplifying the storyline is he gave them something to do and he gave them everything that they needed to get it done is that's our storyline. I don't know if you've thought about it like this before, but you and I are Acts 29. There's only 28 chapters in the story of Acts. You and I are the 29th chapter, as it were. We are, the storyline has not changed. You and I don't need to be confused as to what Jesus has given us to do. And he told us, go change the world. Go tell everyone everywhere about Jesus. And not only has he given us the same thing to do, but he has given us, empowered us to do exactly what he wanted us to do. So that's the big story line within the many, many stories that make up Acts. And I don't want us to lose sight of the big storyline as we walk through. Now, as we're turning to Acts chapter 8, we find ourselves at a bit of a crossroads because somebody has just died. If you weren't here over the last two weeks, uh, we looked at Acts chapter 6 and then Acts chapter 7, and Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, meaning the very first person who died because of his faith in Jesus. And now, as we're going to see here in a moment, as soon as Stephen was killed, as soon as he was murdered for his faith in Jesus, great persecution had broken out across the entire church community. Because now, up to this point, it was just the leaders who were getting harassed, who were getting imprisoned, who were even getting beaten and flogged. And now, as we saw last week, Stephen even getting killed. But it had just been limited to the leaders. But now, as we turn the corner in Acts chapter 8, we find that the entire church community is being persecuted, imprisoned to the point of death. Now, I know as we look at our current context, It's hard for us to contextualize uh, persecution in our country. I'm not suggesting as a Christian that there is no persecution, but to compare our persecution to what we see in Acts chapter 8, it's not a fair comparison. There is persecution, but what they were going through, beatings, imprisonment, and death because of their faith in Jesus, is not our context here in North America. But it is the context of many other countries outside of our country. This is a map of, it highlights the 50 areas, and the colors might not come out great, but those are 50 different countries right now where there is persecution to the point of imprisonment and death. And the countries that are highlighted in red are the top 10 countries right now that are persecuting Christians, not just to imprisonment, but to the point of death. The number one country is North Korea, followed by number two, Saudi Arabia, three, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Malia, Iran, Yemen, Syria. So what might not be our context, it is the context for many Christians around our globe. And I just, I want that to, I want us to feel the weight of that. That there are men who look like you men, and women, there are women who look like you. Some who are moms, some who are dads, brothers, sisters, friends, that because of their faith in Jesus, they are dying. They are being imprisoned. They are being beaten. I'm going to actually close our time by praying for some of these countries by name, but I wanted you to see it might not be our context here. There will be persecution But I wanted you to know at a global scale, persecution is a reality. 
Thousands upon thousands die every single year because they profess the name of Jesus. So this morning, as we're looking at Acts chapter 8, what I simply want to do is walk through just a few verses. Last week, we walked through 60 verses. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a break and just cover about four. Um, But if you have your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 8. I'm going to jump in. And my heart this morning, and we're going to do this very quickly, is... How can, what do we learn from these few verses and how can we apply what we learn to how we live? Let me back up. This is Acts chapter 7, verse 57. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. And they rushed at him. This is Stephen. And they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they stoned him, and by the way, stoning, incredibly painful way to die. Because it's not one stone that crushes you. You are crushed under the weight of literally bones breaking. Eventually your neck snaps. And it's not this quick, easy death. You're talking 15, 20 minutes of stones just being dropped on you until you die. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. And then we turn the corner into Acts chapter 8. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with, killing, with the killing of Stephen. And a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all, that, all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then in the verse 2, it gives a, Luke gives a detail about what happened to Stephen when it says some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul, verse 3, was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. And then verse 4, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. I'm going to share with you two things. Two things that I think we learn from these verses Uh, And I want to be as heavy as I can on how to apply what we learn to how we live. The first point that I'd share with you of what we learn, I'm only giving you two. Number one is this, God can transform anyone. God can transform anyone. And those he transforms, he uses to transform those around you. Now, we have the unique ability to know the story. We know that in a few short weeks... Saul is going to meet Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Saul is going to have such a conversion that not only his life changes, but Jesus actually changes his name from Saul to Paul. We know that. We, have, we can read on. But let me ask you, if you just stopped at Acts chapter 8 and you didn't know any different, how many of you would say, you know what? My money's on Saul being the greatest leader of the church one day. My money is going on that guy. He's going to be the guy that is going to be used by God to do extraordinary things for God. I don't think any one of us would put any amount of money on this guy. I think most of us would be praying, God, take him out. Take this man out who is destroying us, who is destroying the church, who's destroying the movement and the mission. Listen once again to how Luke describes Saul. Was one of the, Saul was one of the witnesses. He agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. He was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging both men and women to throw them into prison. 
How about this? What kind of person... I mean, how hard-hearted and messed up in your head do you have to be to stand by and watch someone bleeding to death as they have stones dropped on them, and you're the guy standing there saying, let me hold your coat as you go ahead and throw the next stone and smile in approval of what he's doing, of what the crowds are doing. Like, how sick do you have to be to be that guy? How deranged, how twisted... How evil do you have to be to be that guy? This is Saul. Was one of the witnesses who agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. In many ways, I look at Saul and I'm like, man, you're a coward. You know, and and if you don't know much about Saul, you need to know this. He was an expert in Old Testament law, in, in Old Testament law. So he knew. He knew better. He knew that this was murder. He knew that murder was against God's law. He knew that Stephen hadn't even received a fair trial and that the death that he was receiving was completely unjust. He knew that. But yet what he knew, he didn't stand up for. He just stood idly by and approved of this man dying. So Luke paints this incredibly hostile picture that Saul is this vicious man, a man driven by hatred for anyone who claimed to be a Christian or a follower of Christ. Now, to put it in context today, Saul would be the warden of prison number 15. Saul would be the warden of prison number 15. And if you're not familiar with prison 15, that's okay. I'm learning it myself. North Korea is the the country that is most hostile towards Christians, towards anyone who's religious, but specifically towards Christian. And there are prison camps throughout North Korea, but prison number 15 is the most hostile. For the 11th year running, this is the most difficult place on earth to be a Christian in reference to North Korea. One One of the remaining communist states, it is vehemently opposed to religion of any kind, Christians are classified as hostile and face arrest, detention, torture, and public execution. There is a system of labor camps, including the renowned Prison Number 15, which reportedly houses 6,000 persecuted Christians alone. They don't even know exactly how bad it is because it's North Korea. And unless you're Dennis Rodman, you don't get into North Korea. But this is Paul. He would be in charge of Prison 15. He would be the guy that was joyfully killing off men, women, children who were were followers of Christ. Now, again, we know the, the rest of the story. There's an amazing conversion. But as Saul, who now is Paul, looks back on his life, this is what he says of himself. This is in Acts 22. We're not going to get there for like four years, but Acts 22 says this, And I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. This is what he says of himself. Galatians 1, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. Then he says in 1 Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying that everyone should accept. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. 
What do you think he was thinking about when he said, I'm the worst of them all? I don't think it was lost or forgotten on Paul, who was once Saul, what he did for the church or was doing to the church. But as I consider all of this about Saul, and if I understand at some level the vileness of Saul, then you and I can understand with greater clarity and conviction that God can transform anyone. That includes Saul, that includes me, that includes you, and those that God transforms, he uses to transform those around them. This is the beauty of the gospel. Like only Jesus, only Jesus could do something like that. Only Jesus could take a guy like Saul, who is vile and evil, and transform him into the guy that became not the greatest persecutor of the church, but the greatest champion of the church. Only the gospel could lead someone who's now Paul to say this, and he says this in Acts 21, I'm ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The guy who once hounded people to the point of death, the guy that once said, I'm trying to destroy this all, is now the guy that's saying, I'm willing to go to prison. I'm even willing to die for the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm belaboring this because I really want you to get, I want you to write down, not just on paper, but in your head and your heart, God can transform anybody. I don't see any better example in Scripture of a transformed person uh, than Saul, who we'll find out in a few weeks, who becomes Paul. Now, if it's true that God can transform even the hardest heart, Saul is a prime example, then how can we apply this truth to how we live our lives every day? If it's true, and it is, that God transforms anyone, how can we apply that amazing truth to how you and I live today, tomorrow? Very quickly, here's a few ways. Number one would be this. Only Jesus can transform a life, so let him do it. Only Jesus can do it. I've never met someone who is like, Michael, I'm an angry person, and I am trying as hard as I can to get angrier. Like, Michael, I am just so filled with lust, and I love it so much, I want to do whatever I can to become more lustful. I've never met someone who was like, I am the most anxious person, and I love it, I wish I could be more anxious. What I meet, and I'm sure what you meet is, you know what? I have so much anger and bitterness and hurt. I have so much anxiety and doubt and worry. I have so much lust and pride. And I don't want to be like this anymore. And I'm trying so hard to change. Only Jesus can transform a life, so let him do it. I can't change myself. I can put some cosmetics on to make myself look appearance a little bit better, but it fades quickly. I can't change myself. I can't transform myself, but Jesus can. This verse, I hope, will take on new meaning. It might be a verse you've heard before, but now that you know that this is coming from a guy who used to be Saul, this is what he said in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That's another way of saying, if you know Christ, you are brand new. A new transformed life, not a refurbished version of your old self, but you are a transformed person. And that's coming from someone who experienced that transformation. So only Jesus can transform a life, so let him do it. 
Second thing I'd say is way of just applying this is what Jesus does with you is not just for you. It's meant to encourage those around you. Meaning as you are being transformed, it's not for you to be really impressed with yourself and for you to look in the mirror and be like, dang, I am getting really spiritual. And, and flex your muscles and say, I, I mean, and you have this conversation with you, with yourself, of I prayed a ton today, I read my Bible, I journaled, I gave, I served. The transformation that is taking place because Jesus transforms lives is not just for you, it's to encourage those around you. Go on in 1 Timothy where Paul says, and this is right after he said, I'm the worst of sinners, he says this, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners, then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. That's Paul's way of saying, if he could do it for me, he could do it for you. Because I knew who I used to be, and I'm no longer that person anymore. The transformation is so people, men and women, would look at your life, and they would say, how is that possible? Well, Jesus, is, he's real. He's alive. He did this for me. He can do it for you. Lastly, his way of just applying this truth of Jesus transforms lives uh, would simply be this. Remember your past, but allow Jesus to shape your present and your future. Remember your past. Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute. I'm not sure if that's biblical, but allow Jesus to shape your present and your future. I've already said, when I think of a transformed life, man, Saul was a life that was transformed. But Saul, now Paul, never forgot who he was. This is Philippians chapter 3. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling. When he says, forgetting what is behind, it's not to say, I've forgotten everything I ever did. I've forgotten that I was standing there when Stephen died. He never forgot what he did, but who he was was not driving who he was becoming. Meaning his past did not hinder his present. His past did not hinder his future. Why? Because he wasn't focused on that. Remember your past, but allow Jesus to shape your present and your future. Let me just ask this question, we'll move on. How is who you once were, or what you once did, or what you had done to you, shaping who you are today and where you're going tomorrow? And hopefully... All of you would answer that question, well, my past isn't shaping me. My history is not shaping me. Jesus is shaping me into a new man with a new heart, with new desires and new passions and new loves. That's what's shaping me. That's what's forming me. Yes, I remember what I was like before I met Jesus, but what's shaping me right now is not me trying to be a better version of my old self, but what's shaping, what's forming me now is Jesus. Those are just three hopefully helpful things. Only Jesus can transform a life, so let him do it. What Jesus does with you, it's not just for you. Share it with others. 
And then three is remember your past, but allow Jesus to shape your present and your future. I really want you to hear that. God can transform anyone, and that means you. So if you think that somehow, some way, you're beyond help, you're beyond redemption, you're just so messed up, your past is so messed up, you're not. Jesus is bigger than you. Jesus is bigger than what you've done or what's been done to you. Jesus can and Jesus does transform lives. Let him do that. All right, moving on, and we'll finish with this one pretty quickly because we're going to play this out over the next uh, few weeks. But if point number one, coupled with some applications there, was God can transform anyone, point number two is this. God uses the suffering of the saints to lead others to the Savior. God uses the suffering of the saints to lead others to the Savior. Again, this is in Acts 3, or Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Isn't that amazing? Some people stayed in Jerusalem, but they continued to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. Some people... It says a lot of the believers were scattered beyond Jerusalem. Why? Well, because if they stayed in Jerusalem, um, it was sure imprisonment. It was sure beating. It was sure death. What I love about what happens here in Acts chapter th- uh, 8, verses 4, is Saul intended to destroy the church. But God took Saul and actually used him as a missionary for the church. He didn't know that at the time. But it was Saul's actions of going from house to house, hunting down Christians, that forced the Christians to get out of their homes and spread out to different places. And what I love about what these men and women did, these Christians did, is they talked about Jesus. They didn't run away and were silent as they were running. As they were being forced out of the city of Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, they were not scattered and silent, they just could not stop talking about Jesus. Now, that point right there where it says God uses the suffering of the saints to lead others to the Savior, I could say a ton on the topic of suffering. It's a challenging topic because it's personal, it's real, it's a good chance that maybe some of you are in a season of suffering right now. It's a good chance that some of you are at the tail end of a season of suffering and you're just tired, exhausted, feeling beat up because of it. So I could say a lot about suffering, but as I look at just Acts chapter 8, the suffering that is taking place is suffering that stems from being with Jesus. There's all sorts of reasons why you and I suffer. I'm not going to list them. There's lots of reasons. But the reason that these men and women began to suffer is because they were being persecuted because of their faith, because of their relationship with Jesus. So again, over the next two weeks, I'm going to share with you two stories of how God used these men and women who were scattered and proclaiming the name of Jesus as they went. But finish with these things. If you are with Jesus, suffering will be a reality. These are three, uh, call it application, call it just a heads up. If you are a Christian, if you are with Jesus, if you're for Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, suffering will be a reality. It's not optional. If Jesus prepared his followers for anything, he prepared them to suffer. He said this pretty clearly in John 15. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute 
you. Again, lots of reasons why men and women suffer in our culture today. Lots of reasons why you would suffer. But I will ask the question, is your suffering that you have been through or going through, is it related to the fact that you follow Jesus? Some suffering is just because of our own sin, our own stupidity and selfishness. Some of it is related to others' sin, selfishness, and stupidity against us. But the suffering we're talking about here, is your suffering, is it related to your friendship with Jesus, your relationship with Jesus? Because if you're with Jesus, suffering will be a reality. Number two would be this. If you are with Jesus, this is even hard to say, but suffering will be a blessing. And I can say that because as you look at the men and women in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, do you think that they were, oh gosh, I'm really bummed that the church is growing and more people are coming to Jesus. Do you think they were sad about that? Or do you think there was rejoicing as they're being scattered, telling other people that people are actually coming to faith? If you're familiar with Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes, he says this, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven's theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you. Why? Well, because you are my follower. If that's not preparing us as Christians, as followers, that there will be people who mock you, there will be people who persecute you, there will be people who say things about you that are just not true, all for this very reason, because you're a Christian. And then verse 12, be happy about it. Be very glad. Why? Because if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not about here and now. Jesus says, be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So if you're with Jesus, suffering will be a blessing. And what I would say about that is if suffering will be a blessing, then when you walk through your suffering, this is not walk through and put a cosmetic smile on your face. This is, I mean, suffering has a really unique way of getting us focused on one thing, and it's our suffering. But what the challenge would be is when you're in season of suffering, rather than just look to what's happening here and now, consider what God will do with and through your suffering in bringing other people to the Savior. Last point is this. If you are with Jesus, your suffering will not be wasted. And I think that's really important for some of us, if not all of us, to hear. That your suffering, it will never be wasted. How many times have you ever suffered through something? You're like, what the, what's the point of this? Why am I enduring this? Why am I going through this? If you are with Jesus, your suffering will not be wasted. Do you think if Stephen, before he died, if he was told, listen, Stephen, this, what is about to happen to you, it's going to spawn off a whole wave of persecution. But because of what you're about to endure for the name of Jesus, there will be generation and generation and generations. In fact, 2,000 years from now, Stephen, men and women will be inspired by what you are about to go through. Do you think Stephen for a moment would have said, oh, forget that, 
I don't want to do this. I don't want to endure. I don't want to go through this. Or do you think Stephen said, God is going to take what's happening to me right now to bless, to encourage, to inspire generations of people, men and women, after me? If your suffering is generationally minded, if it's kingdom minded, if someone were to tell you, you know what, if you suffer for the name of Christ now, but you know what, four generations from now, there will be families upon families upon families that will come to know Jesus because of what you went through. Wouldn't you be willing to go through it? Your suffering, if you're with Jesus, is not going to be wasted. God can transform anyone. We see that with Saul, who we'll meet in a few weeks, becomes Paul. And those he transforms, he uses to transform those around. And God uses the suffering of the saints to lead others to the Savior. I want to pray. And uh, on the screen behind me, uh, there's a list of 50 countries. And I put these names of these countries because currently these 50 countries are the countries where persecution is the greatest. But what's amazing, if, as you begin to read up on some of these countries, uh, specifically North Korea right now, there's an underground movement of churches, over 400,000 tr- uh, Christians right now in a very small state uh, or country of North Korea. So even though they are the, most, the group that is being persecuted the, the heaviest, the Christians are rising up. We, we saw that in the first century. We're seeing it in the 21st century. So as we close and before we spend some time in worship uh, through song and then worshiping through uh, celebrating communion, I want you to respond, not just for your personal response of asking Jesus to continue transforming you, but I also want you to take a moment while we pray to pray for at least a few of those countries by name. Not out loud, just quietly where you sit. Because what you and I need when we are in the midst of suffering for the name of Christ is we need to know we're not alone. First of all, you're not the only saint. There's many saints. And we need other men and women praying for us that if you're in the season of suffering right now, my prayer for you is simply this. God, don't take them out of it until you've accomplished what you want to accomplish with and through their suffering. But strengthen them. Encourage them. Bless them in the midst of suffering. And would you pray that for the men and women whose names you do not know, but God does.